you know, as we grow and develop, it's like when we're learning to ride a bike, you know, first we just like fall over to one side and then we fall over to the other. But even experienced bike riders are making micro adjustments. It's always balancing. It's not that they become balanced completely. And so, yeah, there, there's this grace to how we experience these um, different aspects as we kind of become more accustomed to them. And I think that's true in relationship with other people as much as it is in relationship to how we experience these things within us. Hi, my name's Michael and welcome to Today Dreamer, a podcast and YouTube channel that examines the interplay between inner work and outer work. Through conscious conversations and practical walkthroughs, we'll be exploring ideas and practices to help you find a deeper sense of clarity, develop your focus and take meaningful action. I hope you love the show. Welcome to another episode of the Today Dreamer podcast. Today, I've got Sebene Selassie on, and I'm super excited to share this episode with you because we had a very engaging, very interesting conversation around belonging. And I feel as though because of the way the system is today, belonging is something that we often are deprived of, the feeling of belonging. But each and every one of us are connected in ways that we don't completely understand. And belonging is our natural birthright. We all belong. We are all part of this interconnected system. And we are all connected with one another in the world. And uh, Sebene really, you know, reminds us of that. Sebene is a self-confessed Dharma nerd. She is a meditation teacher, a writer, coach, and consultant. She's studied race and culture um, pretty in-depth, and she's been practicing meditation for 25-plus years. She's also been working with youth and families for social justice programs for over 20 years and is the former executive director of the New York Insight Meditation Center. Sebene is passionate about you know, making Dharma more accessible and relevant to the modern world. And she's a regular guest on the 10% Happier podcast and show with Dan Harris. And um, she's just a very beautiful being. And you're going to sense some of that energy in the conversation today. So um, just wanted to share my gratitude before we get into things. I really do appreciate you being here with me. Um, through this exploration of you know different practices to bring us back to this this feeling or this this state of stillness and exploring the lives and minds of these very interesting individuals um, but yeah this is going to be an interesting chat on belonging and uh, I don't really know what else to say let's let's just get into it if you are enjoying the episodes if you are you know resonating with what I'm putting out, please support the show. You can do that by simply contacting me and letting me know um, what you think about things. Or you could subscribe or you could tell a friend about it. Um, Any of those things would show your support in an immense way. So thanks again for, you know, tuning in and let's get into the chat with 7A. Can I ask you one question before we start? Go for it. Um, Are you recording the audio separately like two different audio tracks or just because if there are major sirens or who knows what can happen in brooklyn if i should mute myself so that you're you don't get kind of overtaken by noise you know what i actually kind of like that extra stuff i feel as though like i don't heard an album recently and it was uh it was i think it was like a rum dust uh, mixed in with like like some of his quotes mixed in with some I don't know kind of like electronic kind of down tempo music and then put onto a vinyl and the guy intentionally left kind of all the creaks in the chair and all these little bits and pieces in there because it felt more real so I, I've kind of taken that onto the podcast and I like that kind of a thing so if that happens I think it's just it's just an extra element that I think will bring you know everyone else out there into the experience a bit more. So let's let's not worry about it. Okay, great. Yeah. Uh, so where do we begin with this? Well, I think what I was thinking about when I was kind of looking forward to this conversation was I don't usually start by talking about someone's book. Usually we just kind of 
talk about things and then the book comes into it. But yeah, no problem. I feel as though your book, I kind of want to start on the book because it's it's such a it's kind of what really grabbed my attention initially. And I've just been kind of thinking about this idea of belonging ever since. Um, and I even meditated on it yesterday and I've had some kind of really, I don't know, kind of beyond words realizations about this idea of just belonging. And this it's more of more of just a, a feeling or a knowing or something inside that um, home comes to mind, you know, something that makes me feel at home here where mm. I am. Mm. Could you tell me a little bit about the book and um, uh, why you wrote it? And, and I'll throw like an introduction and everything um, in afterwards. Sure. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I wrote about belonging, I think, because I've been seeking belonging my entire life. Um, and, you know, I, I wanted to write about it because I feel that it's something that many of us don't feel. Um, starting pretty young, we feel a sense of just not fitting in or outsiderness or really uncomfortable in our skin or our families or our communities. And it just seemed like a theme and really a word that is a synonym for um, what many of us are seeking on a spiritual path or through self-development or self-growth is like a sense of connection and um, freedom and uh, really feeling like we can be at full ease wherever we go. And someone actually, I hadn't thought about this in a while, but someone, I heard someone, I can't remember who it was, the teacher say that the definition of awakening is the capacity to be completely who you are wherever you go. And I remember hearing that thing, oh, wow, like I, I was probably in my 30s at the time and I had that sense, but only in certain places. You know, I only felt that full sense of belonging and ease um, in particular situations with particular people, and I what think kind of that, what kind of situations? Just to, I'm I'm I curious. Then probably with you know my oldest friends, my kind of deepest communities, um, in particular spiritual experiences. So on retreat when I was you know really settled, and even if I was struggling, there was this sense of um, ease within the pain or the struggle. Uh, and, but I think earlier in my life, what, what got me seeking is that I felt that almost nowhere, you know, maybe if I was out with friends and reached a, pers a specific state, maybe, you know, induced <laughs> by substances or not, but like in, in joy and laughter dancing, or, you know, I might've felt that sense of belonging in very particular situations, but most of the time I, I moved around the world, like with this sense of unease. And so as I've grown in my own practice, I feel that sense of belonging more and more and more. And that to me is a sign of my, my growth and my, my, my awakening. So was that, was that uh, a conscious kind of decision? Was it a conscious rec recognition of kind of that part of you that was oh. seemingly missing? Oh, I think I lost you for a moment. Am I back? Yes. <laughs> you said, was that a conscious kind of decision? That's all I heard. Yeah. So was that like a conscious, uh, a conscious decision, you know, to recognize that that part of you was seemingly missing and um, that that's what you were after? Or I mean, like, was that the catalyst for your journey in a way? Yeah, I think the catalyst for my journey was suffering. And, um, you know, in Buddhism, it's said that to, to be on the path, you have to have little dust in your eyes. So you still have dust in your eyes, like you don't see clearly, but, you know, there's, there's some wisdom that even gets you to the path. Because otherwise, I'd still be, you know, wandering, trying to ease my suffering or pain through things that don't usually help um, in the long run with that. So yes, that unease led me there, but I don't know if that was conscious, mm. you know, it was, it was more like a, like a internal homing device that got me there. Mm. And, and 
could you talk to me a little bit about kind of I guess just the just the recognition of this this homing device and then you know going from that point to you know deciding you know I need to write this book oh that's a long journey <laughs> so yeah that that initial homing device you know like a lot of people I think um early on who are seekers not necessarily surrounded by seekers um I was just sort of on my own, seeking out workshops, trying to find a therapist, um, going on my first retreats, and and my friends thought it was pretty weird. And, then, and I have to say, this is 25-some years ago, so this is not the era of mindfulness on podcasts and, you know, mindfulness studios. Like, you, you had to sort of be on the fringes to find meditation and yoga and... Um, it was starting to become more popular, but it wasn't sort of at the level it is now. So, so that was what what drew me then. I, in terms of writing the book, I, you know, I, I made the decision to write the book and started writing it when I was already a, a deep practitioner and already started teaching meditation and um, teaching in Buddhist contexts. So, it felt like a a natural fit for me. I've always enjoyed communicating and writing. Um, that doesn't mean that I thought I could write a book, but actually someone asked me if I would be interested in writing a book. And so that's, that's sort of what drew me to this. And the topic came pretty easily. You know, I thought for a moment I should write about cancer because I've been um, through it three times and uh, it's such a, a, a powerful part of my experience. But I realized I really didn't want to write a book about cancer because cancer sucks. And I didn't want to, you know, spend 200 pages talking about kind of a miserable experience, even if in the end, you know, it, I learned a lot from it. Wow. I, I feel like I, I want to go a bit deeper. I'm not sure if, I'm sure if you didn't want to write about it, you're probably not too inclined to talk about it. But if you're open, I'd like to hear. Oh, yeah. No, I'm, I'm fine talking about it. I just didn't want to spend a whole book on that. Yeah, yeah. That makes sense. I feel as though just... Just thinking about hmm, thinking about going through an experience like that, it feel, and then looking at uh, uh, Buddhism as well. It, it seems like there seems like there may be some point where you're you're kind of faced with your own death or the possibility of it, and that seems like it would um, be a pretty intense experience. It's been something I've been kind of, I guess, dipping my toe in the water with recently, and that's that's the idea of, of dying. Cause it's, it's a scary thought initially. And, and it's just, uh, it's, it's something that I haven't really found myself thinking about before. And I don't mean in a, in a suicidal way. I mean, as in, you know, we're all going to die one day. And what does that mean to us? You know? Yeah. Um, it's it's interesting that there's so many um, contemplations and practices that are part of the traditional mindfulness teachings, like the classical teachings, but we have kind of glommed on to specific ones of them. I think because of our modern tendencies and you know our inclinations. So there are some practices um, that are right there for us to to use, like right there in mindfulness. The body is contemplation of death. And that is, um, you know, a teaching that is considered really, really important, actually, for our spiritual development. I had not done it in my own practice uh, until I actually started to have to face my own death. So um, it, it is a powerful practice. And I, you know, I encourage people to, to work with it to the extent that is comfortable for them. And I think the younger that we do it, the better it is. I, unfortunately, was diagnosed with breast cancer when I was 34. And in in a strange way, my hardest experiences um, medically were in that first diagnosis, even though my next two were more severe as diagnoses. Um, I had more hospitalizations and surgeries and really had, um, you know, close to death experiences in terms of uh, I had kidney failure, I was in the hospital for a while, you know, became really, really thin. And there were times when they didn't really know what was going on with me or what they could do to help me. And um, yeah, so 
having that in my mid thirties when my friends are getting married and having kids and you know starting new careers it was it was pretty frightening and i I just learned so much about um, my own capacity for uh, continuing to to grow and find joy and freedom, but also the freedom and joy that can be found in recognizing that our time here is so short, no matter how long we live. Mm. Mm. Could you talk to me a little bit about maybe some of the ways that your your practice held you through that experience? Because it, it seems like not only it, it evolved throughout it and there was some lessons kind of, you know, ricocheting back and forth off the experiential element, but, you know, it sounds like it, it kind of came at a certain point, you know, you, you'd been practicing already for a while. So would you be able to tell me a little bit about, you know, um, I don't know, like how that, how that went about and, and, and that the interplay between um, all the things that you'd been practicing and, and what were you were experiencing this kind of turbulent moment? Yeah. I, you know, I sometimes wonder how people manage crises without a practice because even with a practice at that point, almost I'd been practicing for about 10 years. I was also do, doing a lot of yoga and been practicing yoga for a long time. And it was still a horror show. You know, I was in shock and in denial and, um, you know, really uh, grasping at ideas and cures and um, really confused. And at the same time, I had... Um, a way and uh, a method and a place to return to, to kind of recenter myself, to ground myself, to, to get some perspective. I had done retreats, silent retreats before that, but I started doing many more. And that was also a way and a place and a method to, to really um, come back to a center that wasn't completely swept up by the storm of what it means to, to deal with cancer. So in a in a practical sense, it was uh, probably at that point where I really turned to practicing with the body in a different way. I think my practice was pretty like head centered before that. You know, I literally was um, doing a lot of breath meditation at the nostrils, which is can be very um, centering and concentrating. But there was a way in which my meditation sort of came down into the body and partly because I, once I started going through treatment, I was experiencing a lot of discomfort in the body and surgeries and pain and um, uh, some pretty caustic and, and challenging treatments. Uh, so that in itself was a huge shift for my practice, that ability to stay with the body and um, find ease even in the midst of pain. That was a huge, huge teacher. Mm. Yeah, that sounds like a, a powerful lesson and the one that I'm I'm still going through myself, I guess. Um, yeah, wow, what an experience. Yeah, I wouldn't wish it on anyone, um, even those I have issues with, and I wouldn't change it, not one part of it. And I have still a lot of repercussions from it. You know, I have uh, issues with my lungs, I have lymphedema, I have immune issues, but I have just grown so much out of that experience and every point, you know, every diagnosis, every treatment, every challenge has been part of why I, I feel like I, I have what I have now, the level of understanding and wisdom and, and joy really that I have now is, is because of that, not in spite of it. Mm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. I mean, it, it there seems to be this common thread among a lot, a lot of the conversations that I have that these you know difficult experiences, you know, uh, you know people come out the other end saying or feeling similar things to what you just expressed, and in a way, I mean, I kind of I feel like the same thing might be happening on a on a, on a collective level as well, mm, and that's yeah. just kind of like this this feeling I'm getting um, with with the struggle of everything at the moment. Yeah, I think Arundhati Roy, um, she was talking about uh, the Indian um, writer and thinker. She was talking about this moment being a portal when she was talking about the pandemic. And I, I really feel like these challenges are portals if we're willing to 
open the door and walk through, they can really serve as passages into new ways of being, which we definitely need. You know, there's, if, we, if we're all trying to wake up and lessen suffering for all beings, we sort of need to pass through difficult moments so we can get to something that is, is better for all of us. Mm. Do you talk about uh, much of that within the book? It's funny because I, I wrote this book um, over the past year and a half. I finished really writing it at the beginning of the year, mm. but I received, um, you know, the the last pass, sort of the last edits, right around the time of George Floyd's murder. And um, I was able to add in a few things about COVID, like in the second pass, which had come to me maybe a month earlier. So there, I have some mentions about this time period in the book, but the book is just kind of naturally dealing with those issues in a way, because it's talking about belonging and the paradox of the fact that we belong to each other. You know, that's just, you can hear sirens in the background because I'm in Brooklyn. <laughs> um, that it, it's just the truth, like ancient wisdom, all spiritual traditions tell us this, that we're not separate from each other. I just let that pass. <laughs> it's, the, it's the kind of peak point, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, goodness, NYPD. So how, could you explain this maybe in a little bit more detail and um, and kind of, yeah, share your thoughts on, on the whole idea? And it's, yeah, it sounds so like a big question. but it, it is, but it's the central question. So it's kind of the central paradox of the book that um, we are interconnected. We're not separate. You know, science tells us this. Physics shows us this, that, that idea that we can kind of separate pieces and parts out is actually false, that we're all probably just vibrating energy in different forms. So um, whether you're looking at like Buddhist teachings or indigenous wisdom or scientific theory, there is that truth that we're not separate, that we're fundamentally interconnected. So that's one truth. But the other truth is that we are separate beings. You're in Melbourne, I'm in Brooklyn. You know, we have different realities and experiences. And the thing is that they're both true. And this is a doctrine in Mahayana Buddhism. It's called the doctrine of the two truths. And the thing about them is that they're both true. So I find that often we lean into one or the other, depending on our orientation and comfort. And some people lean into the truth of interconnection and sort of long for that harmony and, you know, don't want to deal with the truth of our difference and separation and injustice and oppression. So they fall into the, oh, we're all one and I don't see race and why can't we all just get along and we're interconnected and that's the truth of our being. Well, that is true. And then we can also get caught in the truth of our disconnection because of cultural realities and oppression. And we can sort of get swept up in our rage and get caught in sort of the, the um, power of righteousness. And, you know, we can get entangled in the complexity. So I find that finding that balance where we're paying attention to the suffering and pain and trying to right the wrongs of injustice and, and difference. Um, and then also not giving up the fact that we are interconnected. So it's like, how, how, which way do we lean when, you know, when are we running away from one towards another and how do we keep that truth, both truths in mind all the time? And that, that's the, the heart of a spiritual practice, especially in community. Yeah, there seems to be a lot of this I don't want to say balancing. It's, it doesn't for me. It doesn't. I don't know if that's the right word. But it seems like this kind of. I don't know. Push and pull seems wrong as well. This kind of interplay. This kind of this this flowing um, through uh, things uh, through 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 the experience in different ways comes about in a lot of different areas. Like one that you just mentioned, and there's also this idea of kind of, you know. In, and it might be similar in a lot of ways and probably the same in a lot of ways, but kind of like engaging with our experience and then kind of accepting or allowing what's taking place. And that's also this kind of a 
balancing act or, or this kind of an interplay and there seems to be a lot of these like what's with all the interplays like you know what I, mean? <laughs> I think I think um you know I, I love balancing in some um ways and like a metaphor it just shows us kind of that that if it if if it is flowing properly mm-hmm. um but I love this ter- term interplay I've never used it in that way and that's that's a beautiful way to describe it too and and I also love that you you described it as flow because I think there's something to uh, flow that really speaks to the ease that we're aspiring to and how we relate to it because balancing can be really jerky too. And I think that especially when we're first um, encountering these polarities, whatever they might be, um, it does feel jerky, you know, and then we start to find kind of more flow. And I see that in my practice, like there's that, interplay and flow of, okay, I have to bring my attention back, but I also want to allow some ease in how I do that. In the beginning, we're sort of like, oh God, I got caught up in thought again and bring our attention back in this kind of harsh way to our breath. And, you know, as we grow and develop, it's like when we're learning to ride a bike, you know, first we just like fall over to one side and then we fall over to the other. But even experienced bike riders are making micro adjustments. It's always balancing. It's not that they become balanced completely. And so, yeah, there, there's this grace to how we experience these um, different aspects as we kind of become more accustomed to them. And I think that's true in relationship with other people as much as it is in relationship to how we experience these things within us. Mm. For sure. Yeah, for sure. I've got this thing on my mind and 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 it's kind of pulling me in that direction. I want to hear a bit more about the specifics of your practice and maybe what you teach. Mm. Yeah, you know, these days I'm teaching a lot of uh, lying down practice because I'm on a mission to get people to lie down during meditation, especially the kinds of modern folks who show up to most you know, teachings these days, because we often show up, even if it's subtle or if it's unconscious with this agenda, this like goal of self-improvement, there's some kind of like still punitive attitude we take towards ourselves like we're bad and that we need to be better and um Mm. and so there's we come basically with a lot of tension you know in in that and to me that's like what not belonging shows up as is like some kind of tension of feeling like we're not quite right and we have to change and we have to get more of this or less of that or you know we don't have an enough whatever the enough is, we're not successful enough or rich enough or smart enough or, you know, woke enough or pretty enough, you know, we can like be endless and are not enough. So that ease of lying down is really powerful. Um, I, I do, I do lying down meditation every day and there's like new, and amazing levels of release that I can find. That there are all these ways that I hold tension in my body that I'm still discovering, you know, that, uh, you know, even like just deep in my solar plexus, there might be a, a holding that I, I never uncovered. Because I think that um, really helps to balance <laughs> the doing that we're so caught up in or I'll say I am, and I witness this around me, that we're hardly ever not doing now. And I consider doing also, you know, scrolling um, and taking in information and all of the activity that we put our brains and our hearts and our bodies through uh, constantly. So my practice is really about teaching people and continuing myself to develop that, that ease um, to help to help balance all of the doing, and then the other part of my practice that's been um, growing and growing for me is this real coming into connection with what um, I can only describe as nature, and that I'm not separate from that. Um, that there's somehow the sense of self and the kind of uh, unhelpful ego is 
is really when I separate myself from the sense of nature. So really using the practice to connect to just the naturalness of my body. So I use the elements practice a lot, which is also another classical practice in the mindfulness teachings that doesn't get taught very much, where you just connect to the earth element, the fire element, the water element, the air element within, and there's a natural um, uh, understanding that arises that that's not separate from everything around us. And, you know, I'm just really fascinated too that the elements are in um, indigenous teachings in every culture, every continent, you know, all the ancient systems of health and well-being and spirituality include the elements so just wanting to tap into that really ancient knowing yeah that sounds fascinating you've mentioned um well yeah it is it is very interesting that it's that it's within all the cultures and when, when you look at um these these traditions that have you know thousands of years behind them and then you see similarities between them uh there must be a reason for that and and they feel and especially when you can when you can connect that to your own sense of kind of feeling into things and your own sense of oh wow now this takes me a little bit deeper into you know my feeling of belonging and 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 yeah it's it's an interesting have you found any other kind of patterns within um these kind of ancient traditions or um ancient people um I, I can't say that I've done a lot of investigating of this, but uh, it, it is interesting to me that the breath is a common meditation practice and object, uh, you know, way of connecting in, in so many traditions. So that's, that's another, you know, more common, much more well-known practice. Mm -hmm. um, I, I do, I really do like the, um, instruction in the classical mindfulness teachings that we're bringing awareness internally, we're bringing awareness externally, and we're bringing awareness internally and externally. And sometimes I feel that's another thing that's gotten lost in our um, study of these teachings and our practice that uh, we're, we're actually invited to kind of see that lack of separation and that connection. Um, so you can do that with the breath too. So Mm. Breath practice for me isn't only about, you know, my individual sense of concentration or what the breath can do for my practice, but really experiencing that um, non-separation from, from all breathing beings and really all of, all of this planet. Mm. Feel free to say no to this, um, but I've got to, I, I would... I think it'd be really great to do a bit of a, a short meditation with you to close things off. And and if you haven't got time or if you're not in the mood, that's totally cool because I understand it's really hot over there where you are. But I think it might be a fun experience. Yeah, sure. Um, Is there a particular meditation? I just, I, I guess I'd I'd like to share kind of your, like you leading us through something that's more of your style. Um, and we could even invite people to lay down. I don't know. Um, but it might be fun, but anyways, sure. I, yeah, yeah, yeah um, happy to. So I wanted to speak to you about retreat because I've noticed you've mentioned it a few times, and mm. I'm I'm kind of in this in this um, stage or, or or step, I guess I'm not sure how to how to phrase it, but I'm in this um, space at the moment where I'm trying to find a way to organize things in my life um, uh, to a certain uh, extent and, and I've noticed that there's kind of a bit of organizations needed in some areas and one of those areas is my practice you know mm. um, organizing myself as to kind of uh, what I'll be doing and, and obviously allowing for other things to come up and you know if it doesn't really work out in certain times and whatever else but I'm trying to incorporate more retreats and and even you know define what they are to me and 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 what type of retreats that may really uh I could may really act as some kind of a stepping stone to my practice you know once in a while to kind of um push myself and and take me a bit a bit um deeper into things you know before coming back to um, daily life. Could you talk to me about your, your experience with retreat and, and just this idea of kind of organizing a practice? 
Yeah, you know, um, sometimes we can fetishize retreats and think that, you know, that's where we're going to figure things out. And what I found uh, in my life and what I've seen with uh, you know, friends and people around me and also my teachers is that retreat really complements our daily practice and our daily life. So um, it helps give us time to reflect, to deepen, but then we really have to do the work of bringing that back into our life. And for me, a lot of the transformation then happens in my life, not necessarily on retreat. Um, but uh, having said that, I would encourage for those who can make time, and it's harder depending on our life, our work schedules. Obviously right now, retreat centers are mostly closed, so no one's doing retreat in that way. Um, it can also, if we live in urban environments, really give us access to, to nature in a way that, uh, you know, for me, I, I just didn't have um, the opportunity uh, without retreat time to really be in nature in that way that, um, gives us that deeper connection because we are able to commune. You know, we're not on a trip with family or moving from one place to another. We're really able to, to feel the power and majesty and, and interconnection with nature. So it, it's really important that way too, for those of us who don't have access, um, even though everything is nature, including us. Um, but wild nature is something different. Um, and then, you know, it's also can be a slippery slope because I've found and what I see in a lot of people, um, I used to run a Dharma center in New York City, New York Insight Meditation Center. And we used to, uh, the co-director and I, we would um, sometimes refer to ourselves as like the black widows because we would just kill people's like connection to their careers or to sort of normal life mm. that once you start practicing and once you start doing retreats it's hard to stop you know there's kind of that dharma bum dharma dropout phenomenon and you realize the power of deepening practice and um, you start to kind of orient your life around that rather than the other way around um, so you know be careful <laughs> what you wish for and and what you create because it can cascade too uh and i i think that it's um it's amazing even if you do a day-long retreat and we can create that for ourselves right we can do that at home we can just decide to unplug the wi-fi and turn off the phone and practice all day um, we can do that in an urban setting. There are a lot of urban centers now that do kind of um, um, retreats that are non-residential, you know, sort of have practices all day. You go home and sleep and then you come back the next day and do them. And you, there are weekend retreats, so you can start small. And there's a real power in longer retreats. So to do 10 days, two weeks, or even more, um, really provides the opportunity to deepen in a way that I think uh, is just not not possible, has not been possible um, unless you were a monastic or had a, a particular life path. And the fact that more and more people have access to that, I think, is is one of the ways that you know will create portals for more and more people, for more and more change. You seem like you just lightened up after that last sentence. Could you? Do you have a specific experience that you can kind of, that comes to mind when you talk about you know the deepening um, power of a, of a longer retreat? Oh wow! You know, it's funny that I lightened up because a lot of my long retreats have been really hard. You know, they're not pleasant experiences, but pleasant doesn't have to mean suffering, right? Unpleasant doesn't have to mean suffering. Pleasant doesn't have to mean suffering either, but. <laughs> There's a way in which, you know, we um, we learn how to have ease by going through difficulty. That I think um, retreat gives us the opportunity to really plug into because there's nothing to distract yourself with. And if I'm having a hard time, I can call a friend, I can, you know, complain about someone or complain about something or distract myself with something pleasant or, um, you know, there's so many ways for us to get away from what's unprocessed or feels undigestible. But on retreat, 
of course you could you know hide in your room the whole time and do nothing but if you've gone there and made that commitment and paid all that money and gone all the way um most of the time uh you'll have the support around you also to to really stay with it and we learn by staying with it how much transformation can come from that and and you know i want to say that's as true so a lot of retreats are silent and they're individual, but I think that's true of um, the practice of being in community in general. It's one of the most kind of famous phenomena on retreat is that everybody drives you crazy, even though no one's talking to each other and you're not interacting. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, there's, there are two phenomena that people talk about, the Vipassana romance. So, you know, falling in love with complete strangers and then at the end of the retreat, you meet them and you realize that they're your worst nightmare. That's interesting. Um, so you just sort of project <laughs> onto these people. And then the other is the Vipassana Vendetta. You know, someone whose just way of being annoys you. Um, and the more and more retreats you do, the more you realize that it's you, right? It's all, it's all about you and your own projections. You start to see that. You start to be able to, to laugh at them too. Sounds like there's a pretty um, there's some pretty interesting links between uh, going on a retreat and life. <laughs> yes, it really is. It shows you, except you don't have all of the distractions or um, all of the the projections and counter projections to help you ignore life. You know, to help mm. you ignore your own mind, your own tendencies. You know, it's all right there for you to see. But from the perspective of the lessons that you, you draw from that experience, it's kind of almost as if it's because you don't have those distractions, some kind of an acceleration is taking place or a facilitation of sorts. Definitely, definitely. Yeah, it's mm. a great way to put it. Yeah, I don't really have much experience with retreats, to be honest. I've been running my own little ones um, where I go into the forest for a couple of days and just stay at a house and, and do my own thing. And, um, and how are they? They're amazing. I mean, I found a period before them and after them to be uh, very important. So the preparation leading up to the retreat usually kicks kicks me into gear. And um, I've been trying to... What I've been doing is I've been trying to kind of uh, take note of my natural environment where I am at the moment and the changing of not only the seasons, but and just going to the seasons for a moment in, in the Aboriginal kind of calendar, there's a... This, there's many more seasons than just the four traditional ones. Um, you know, you've got you've got when certain flowers start coming out. You've got when the last leaf falls, and and this mm. kind of an idea. So I'm trying to kind of match up uh, at the moment my retreats with uh, or my what I'm calling retreats with kind of what's going on in my environment, and then kind of finding a way to pay homage to kind of that what's going on there and linking that to my own experience and. I found the preparation for these to be really powerful because I know it's coming up. So I'm really trying to, you know, do the best I can and, 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 you know, give it the respect that it deserves. Um, because then not only because of the fear of getting my ass kicked when I'm on the retreat, but also <laughs> because I feel as though that's, like I said, that's what it deserves. And then, uh, the retreat itself is, uh, like you said, it, it's this kind of beautiful challenging uh mix of of um elements and then afterwards there seems to be a real uh opportunity um to integrate the experience and um an opportunity that can be squandered and can be wasted and can be mm. kind of allowed to pass without really um making the most out of it and um, but also one that's uh you know, available to really kind of step into and, and use that as a part, uh, a way to strengthen my practice, like you mentioned earlier. So, yeah, uh, but I haven't actually been to like any, any Vipassana or anything like that, but I'm, I'm interested. I'm interested in kind of exploring that and seeing what that world is like. And it's interesting, these correlations you mentioned about, about people and the way they feel with one another without even speaking to, to each other. And, and sometimes you know, in life that, that comes up, I know personally, that's come up for me a lot of times. And, and it's just about kind of recognizing that it is me, you know, and, and it is kind of a projection. Um, yeah. So yeah, and then they have a saying that we're like rough stones rubbing up against each other. And that's how we become polished mm. and smooth. Yeah. I feel like you're, you're a bit of a, you've mentioned this before and I've heard you talk about it. You're a bit of a Dharma nerd. You, yeah. um, <laughs> Yeah, I, I want to know a little bit more about these 
Like, I'm interested in in how Buddhism has kind of uh, shifted and changed, you know, depending on geographical area, the time, um, the culture, the, you know, how language has changed and, and kind of developed over time. And that's kind of had an influence on, you know, these different traditions. Would you be able to share some like interesting, like an interesting, I, I'm asking you the most random questions today. Could you be able to share <laughs> like an interesting fact or, or a little bit about that kind of, I, I don't know if it's an obsession or that interest of yours in, in kind of studying up on this kind of a thing. Yeah, I don't, I don't really know where the interest itself comes from. I mean, I have a, a degree in Buddhist in religious studies focused on Buddhism, but I was actually a pretty terrible student. So I don't think. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I was an undergrad and I was partying a lot and, um, but obviously something drew me to it, but um you know, I, I guess partly because I, I have been in different traditions and um, sort of see and notice the difference between the teachings and the communities. But I think the, the primary kind of um, interest for me now is to see, to really start to look at the lenses through which these teachings get transmitted, um, especially here in the West and, and why that is. So, you know, there's this sort of assumption that we're getting the pure and clean teachings, but translation by its very nature is, uh, is biased in some way or another, even just the words we use. We translated this word sati as mindfulness, and now we think that that is the thing, this word mindfulness, but that even that word is very fraught with the connotations we bring to it by putting mind at the front, you know the attentional aspect being really emphasized over kind of the allowing or awareness aspect of it. it the, the original word has a connotation of remembering. We've kind of lost that as, um, you know, part of that origin of that, that teaching. So there, there's so much there, I think, um, that allows us to see the cultural bias, the, the bias of the dominant um, uh, voices who kind of speak these teachings aloud and and also what was left out you know what was left behind so certain people either um, Westerners who traveled to Asia or Asians who came to the West brought their perspectives of these teachings and so what's happening you know in Thailand or in Burma, or how did the teachings change in Burma because of British colonization? Like, there's so many aspects to how these teachings move, you know, how they moved from South Asia to Southeast Asia, how they changed in Tibet because they encountered Bon culture and, and spirituality, how they merged with Taoism and Confucianism in China and became Chan, how that went to Japan and blended with Shintoism and became Zen. So these teachings are already these cultural mixes. And so here we find it meeting, you know, neuroscience and um, Western perspectives and secularism. And, and then that becomes the true teachings of Buddhism. And so it's, it's just an interesting cultural conversation, I think, too. Yeah, 100%. And, and I, th I feel as though it's just the, again, this flowing between the different uh, traditions, it seems as though... Uh, there seems to be this common element throughout uh, or a common thread of sorts or many common threads that kind of, that comes through, although there are so many differences as well. Yes. And that is um, kind of the core that we could also identify that's connected to a lot of indigenous wisdom too, right? That comes back to that truth of belonging and interconnection and kindness and seeing things clearly and um, compassion and you know these truths that we find across cultures yeah mm -hmm. cool that was uh that was very fascinating i'm interested to kind of read up a little bit more on on the history and and just i find it very interesting myself although i haven't i haven't really gone down that path very deeply yeah there seem to be more and more people kind of exploring that and writing about it and and looking at um you know the ways that Buddhism has been interpreted rather than thinking that, you know, we're getting the facts. Mm. Mm. Yeah. I think that's a dangerous, dangerous thing to kind of think um, that, that we kind of know something, <laughs> you know, um, that we're, that we're, yeah, anything at all. Like, 
we don't know what's going on. No one knows what's going on. So it's like this, it's this, yeah, this trap that I, I find myself falling into quite often, actually. Um, and it's, yeah, it's worth kind of approaching things with with an open mind, as open as possible. And, and, and um, I think it's worth, uh, personally, like I found it really valuable to just op- open up to everything as much as possible, anything that comes my way. And, and um, you know, for example, people that, that come into my life um, mm. or just come across my path and I, and I found, I find interesting or an experience that I normally wouldn't engage in um, and ideas and new ideas and trying to be as open as possible to those. Um, yeah. Anyway, great attitude to have, you know, I think that is um, probably the, the most important kind of attitude is that curiosity yeah. Actually, I write about this in my book that my friend, um, well, many years ago I was journaling and I realized that creative and reactive are the same word. The That's interesting. Moves. I never knew that. Mm. Yeah. And so my friend asked me, what, what does the C stand for? Because the C comes to the front in creative. Uh, okay. And we were talking about it and we were like, oh, maybe it's like compassion or maybe it's consciousness. And I decided that it's curiosity. Mm. That when we are truly curious that that's that's how we move out of reactivity into creativity yeah the sense of curiosity i think it 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 helps us through a lot of things in life as well like you could be going through a really difficult time um and it it may seem kind of uh ridiculous or unbelievable to find some curiosity within that but i think Mm -hmm. that has some power if you're able to get in touch with your own kind of curious nature and say Okay, I'm, I'm. I've got a lot of pain here, but maybe I should. You know, maybe I can explore this pain. Maybe I can explore why I'm feeling like this, or how this is kind of affecting my life, and 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 just this exploration or this curiosity, just the just the just the fact that you're kind of going through the motions of that. Uh, before you know it, you're you're kind of um, you're looking at the whole experience from a different lens. Yes, definitely. Yeah. 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 Rather than this, you know. Uh, controlling, uh, forcing, um, things need to be this way. I need, I, and, and, and I, I, I should feel like this. Otherwise, you know, think something's wrong. Um, just to contrast that with the curiosity, it can be, it can be liberating. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I love that. Okay. So, uh, I don't really know where to go from here. I feel like we've had a good conversation and I feel as though, uh, people can get something out of it. So that's, that's kind of the main thing. Um, should we should we do a bit of a, a meditation and then maybe afterwards you could share some details about uh, your book and all that kind of um, how people can get in touch with you you know the, 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 that regular part of the show <laughs> <laughs> great so we'll do like a five minute meditation yeah and um, I'll just I'll leave it up to you and just we'll just follow along great so for people who are listening along you can lie down um, Highly recommend that to really allow the body to relax and release. But if you're sitting or standing, just um, whatever posture you're in to allow yourself to find some balance between being open and relaxed. So you might want to roll your shoulders up and back and just make sure the front of the body is open, not contracted. You can take a deep breath in and out to allow some relaxation and release to come to the body. You can close your eyes or just gaze softly ahead of you. Just allow your attention, your awareness to come inwards. Begin to rest your awareness on the body, place to begin to gather your attention, connect to sensation, the body can be a really easeful place for us to rest awareness. And sometimes there are things going on in the body that are challenging or difficult and and that's okay too. So finding a place in the body that you can rest 
can put your attention and find even a little bit of ease. For some of us, that's the breath. So if you'd like to be with the breath, just noticing breathing as a process. Noticing each inhale and each exhale. If the breath is not a comfortable place for you, perhaps resting awareness on the feet or the hands. Just anywhere where you can actually sense your experience can actually feel sensation. So feeling each breath coming in and out, noticing what those sensations are like, what each breath is like, if it's long or short, or smooth or rough. We're noticing contact, feeling the feet on the floor or feeling your seat in the chair. And when the mind thinks, which it will do, because that's what minds do, that's not a problem. It's just part of the process. And you can use the breath, the body, any sensations as an anchor to help us come back to this sense of presence and ease. Thoughts and sounds can arise. You can still come back to just this moment of breathing, of feeling. Just knowing in any moment throughout our day, when we remember, we can come back to this presence, this connection with the body, always right here. The body is never in the future or the past. It's never planning or worried. It's simply being. Opening your eyes when you're ready. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for tuning into this episode with Sebenay. You should definitely check out her book, You Belong. It's coming out soon and depending on when you're listening to this, but I'm going to leave you some links in the description. If you want to find out a little bit more about her work, what she's up to and her story, uh, then head over to sebenaselassie.com. It's S E. 
B-E-N-E-S-E-L-A-S-S-I-E. And um, yeah, we can go from there. So I might even be gifting away um, a copy of her book in a coming episode on the show. I'm definitely going to be getting a copy for myself. So stay tuned for that. And um, yeah, I don't know what else to say. I really do appreciate your presence and you being here with me and coming on this journey with me. If you want to support the show, then all you need to do is contact me and let me know how you feel about it. Give me some feedback. Leave a review. If you're listening to this, I need some more reviews um, that would really come in handy. So um, leave a review, uh, leave a comment. Let me know what you think, get in touch or um, or just click subscribe if you haven't already. Anything like that would really help uh, really, you know, build some momentum in the direction of, you know, wherever this is heading. We'll just have to see. Uh, but yeah, thank you again for tuning in and stay tuned to for more, you know, conversations around um, exploring that state of stillness, some practices that are going to help us reach it and um, connecting on a deeper level with ourselves, the beings around us, and the planet as a whole, uh, because that's what um, this show's all about, and that's what we're really going to be going deep into in the coming episodes. So catch you next time, I guess. Thank you.